1: On this podcast we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. And all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, On to my guest for today, Tyler Robertson, founder and CEO of Diesel Laptops, a company that provides truck owners with the tools to more efficiently diagnose and repair their own vehicles as an alternative to going to the dealer. Tyler grew up in the upper middle class, but the summer he finished seventh grade, his father informed him that he should start to work in the family business, which was a concrete manufacturing plant. It was miserable. But Tyler learned to shift his attitude and learn the value of work. His parents agreed to help him go to college for computer engineering, but Tyler failed out and returned home, where he started working for a company in his family that recently acquired a truck dealership. Tyler quickly learned about the business, staying on even after the family sold it, though finding himself without a job a year later. Tyler took a job in another state and was working his way up the ladder when he saw an opportunity to provide a solution to a problem he solved, helping truck drivers and owners diagnose and repair their trucks. With the move to a higher reliance on computers for his work, many truck drivers had no option but to go to the dealership. Tyler found a way to provide them with what they needed. With his company demanded that he drop his side business, Tyler, with his wife's support, took the leap into full-time entrepreneurship. Diesel laptops has grown exponentially in just seven years. It now employs 200 people and is looking to provide more streamlined solutions to help truck owners more easily and quickly diagnose and repair their trucks. Vehicles that can't easily be replaced. If you lose your mixer truck, as an example, you are out thousands of dollars until it can be repaired, which is not good, right? Tyler's story shows how listening to what customers want and finding a way to provide it can be the key to success. Now... Let's get better together. Tyler Robertson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm
2: I'm excited to have a conversation here. Like this is right up my alley, man. Journeys, entrepreneurship, everything going on.
1: It's so cool. I mean, you're the founder and CEO of diesel laptops, and you guys provide solutions for people that fix diesel engines, like the not the diesel clothes. <laughs> <laughs> the actual <laughs> engines, you know, the thing they put in the truck that gets you your Amazon order and your food, that thing. <laughs> yeah. And,
2: you know, ironically, we did have a little legal skirmish with diesel clothing line through this whole process. Oh, really? But uh, yeah, and to, to give people some context here, we're we're not a company. I mean, I, I just hit year seven, uh, but it was me in my garage seven years ago. No, no funding, no angel investors. And today, I can tell people we do a little north of seventy million in revenue this year, wow. and we got over two hundred employees, and wow. we bootstrapped it. So it's it's been you know there's the story of how we got here, and then there's a story of where we're going. So yeah, wow. it's it's been a ride.
1: Yeah, well that's great. I can't wait to get into all of that. And uh, you know, as I always like to say, anyone that's ever listened to the show, I start with the same question. I'm a I'm a simple guy. You know, um, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today?
2: Yeah, so I think. It's uh, it's really three things that happened, and they're probably the three worst things that happened to me each time, and they end up being the best things that ever happened to me now that we have this 2020 hindsight. Um, so I can say that the first thing that happened to me is I was, I was a pretty good student in high school, and my family was definitely you know upper middle class. They owned a business. They did well. And I wanted to go to a nice college, go computer engineering. My, and this is expensive. I mean, this is, you know, in the nineties, late nineties, and it was $60,000 a year. And, uh, my dad had to take out a, a mortgage on the, on the house. So I could, a second mortgage, so he could afford to put me to school. And I utterly failed at it. They, they kicked me out two years later and said, go away. Uh-huh. You, you can't, you can't handle this. And, 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 at the time, that's really hard uh, to go back to your, your mom and dad and say, man, I just blew through a hundred thousand dollars and I got I got nothing to show for it. And um I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Um so that's that's a that's a hard one to have to swallow. Um and thankfully my my dad had a business and they were doing pretty well and they were investing more businesses. And he said, Hey, you know, we're we're buying a truck dealership. They were in the concrete and gravel pit operation, they knew trucks, they knew equipment, and they said, Hey, we're gonna start this this truck dealership thing. And they kind of, I was, blue, I was, I was the labor. I was the one helping lay the bricks and run piping and, and do all those things. That's what he had for me. And uh, thankfully, cause I knew something about computers. They needed someone there to, uh, you know, put up the servers and the desktops and the business system and put the data in the business system. So I, I hung around there and I just grew to love this truck dealership world. And people probably don't know there's a whole world, like they know car dealerships, there's the exact same thing for commercial trucks, but it's a lot of different nuances. Right. And uh, my family knew nothing about running a truck dealership. So I, I always tell my dad, I'm like, man, you know, if there's a hundred ways to lose money owning a truck dealership, trust me, there there is. But my, <laughs> we, found, we, we found 101, right? We just, <laughs> we just didn't know anything. All these things that I know now. Right. Um, and my family ended up buying out one of the competitors in town, putting two together. We got it from losing a massive amount of money to breaking even. And they're five years into it and they're like, this business sucks. Like <laughs> we put, we want out, we want to go back to our concrete, like it's taking away our focus. Um, so they sold it and they they sold it to to a bigger company, and that bigger company asked me to stay on. And I loved, I love that business. Like I, I was working crazy hours for my family, um, probably even more so when I worked for somebody else. And then, you know, one day they they about a year, almost a year later, they pulled me in their office, the manager, and said, We're firing you and i uh, you know i i think at the time it was you know there was still some legacy stuff i they just weren't happy with me my family owned the business before and there's a lot of trying to get the old people out and the new people in and and that going on and
1: right, right. i had
2: just gotten married no kids and had to go home and tell my wife like she's like why are you home i'm like i got fired and that's that's again, you know, I, I failed at something, um, and you oh, have to go home and tell your spouse, like, I'm tough. not good enough. Someone fired me. It's a it's a hard thing to to tell someone that you love. Um, yeah. But that 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 set me on a different path. It set me on a path where I was I was pissed off at getting fired, and I went to go work for their competitor, and they I went to work in their sales department, and uh, I realized something about myself. I, I realized you can make a lot of money doing sales, and definitely not the career I want to do. So I did not like being on a draw, waking up with you know, no money every month or owing somebody money every month. Put my uh, resume on the internet and it it landed me. I, I interviewed a couple of places, got job offers at all of them, but it got me out of Minnesota into South Carolina, where I became a service manager at a, at a great company down here. And I learned a lot. I, I took all those lessons I learned. Um, I, did, I did really well for them. They kept promoting me. Um, but in the meantime, I kept seeing a lot of issues and problems with this whole truck repair space. Um, and the biggest issues were that customers didn't have access to their own information. So we were a dealership. Uh, if people hear about right to repair and John Deere gets mentioned in the news all the time oh, yeah. and Apple and all these companies, yeah, yeah, yeah. right?
1: Right to repair, right,
2: right? Yep. So in the truck world, um, you know, you flashback 10 years ago, you, you didn't get access to diagnostic tools to hook up to your own truck. They were all becoming computerized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't get access to repair information. You didn't get access to look up your own parts. Your only option was bring it to the dealer. And the dealers loved it uh, because, hey, we get all the business. Where else can they possibly go? Uh, And what I kind of found through that process was there were people starting to build these tools and these things that allow people to have their own control over their own data and their own diagnostics. And uh, people were constantly at the dealership asking, I want to do that. I want to do that. And when I worked in the service department, we just said, no, you can't do it. And as they wanted to promote me inside that organization, they said, hey, we you to go run the parts department for a while. So same building, same company. I now report to somebody different. I'm not in the service side. I'm on the parts side of the, the wall. And that parts manager director I reported to said, man, I don't care. sell diagnostic software. I don't care. Like, I just want to make margin. That's what we do here. Someone cheeseburger for all I care. Parts, cheeseburgers, tools, whatever. So I'm like, cool. So I started selling diagnostic tools to customers and they were asking. And uh, we, we quickly learned. I quickly learned a couple of things. These are 50, 60-year-old shop owners, and they need three things to, to do diagnostics. They need a computer. They need software. And you need this piece of hardware to go between your, your laptop and the truck. And we were only providing one piece of the puzzle. And you can imagine a 55-year-old shop owner who has probably been a diesel tech this whole life trying to figure out how to install Bluetooth drivers and update firmware and license software outside his skill set. Right? So um, it just kind of migrated to me, starting to provide that service, a complete package through my own company. So uh, my own company, I was like, man, I'm selling software, but now it's taking up my time helping people install things. How about we just, I just buy software from you. I'll buy a laptop somewhere else. I'll put them together in my spare time and I'll sell it back to the company. You guys can mark it up and we solved a problem and, and, and it worked. Um, and I, I started putting those on the internet and they started selling there as well. Um, and things are going along for a couple of years pretty well until kind of the next thing happened. So I'm working this company for 10 years. The person I reported to the owner's daughter, she comes to my office one day and she says, Tyler, like good news We're we're going to, we're going to double your bonus this year. And I'm going to give you a 10% raise. Like, well, that sounds great, but you just gave me my bonus and a raise like three months ago. So what's going on? And she's like, well, you got to quit your side business. And I'm like, okay, um, You know, why? She's like, well, you're creating alternatives for customers and we think it can impact our business. I'm like, well, you know, I was like thinking in my head, like, man, if the only reason people are going to is because you have the knowledge and you have the tools, like that's not a sustainable business model. Like, and if it's not me, that's going to disrupt it, it'll be someone else. Um, So I I still give my dad a hard time. I called them and I'm like, dad, what do I do? I got to, at this point, just put in perspective, I had a one year old, I had a three year old, and my wife is a stay at home mom. And I was a sole breadwinger. I had the 401k, the health insurance, all these things. I love the company. I've been there 10 years. And now I just got told to go, you know, quit my side hustle um, or, or take more money. And I called my dad and my dad's like, man, you got a one-year-old, you got a three-year-old, you got all these things. You love the company, stay there um, and, and figure out a way to sell or get rid of that side business. And I'm like, okay. So I went home, told the wife, like, I think it's a safe thing to do. You got to take care of us. My wife looked me in the eye and she's like, nope, screw that. Go put your notice in tomorrow. Um, uh, she was she believed in me more than I believed in myself at the time, and oh. I, I I can say we were in a good spot. We had we had no debt. I, I had the house almost paid off. That was the last thing I had left. Wow. Um, we had savings up, so we're, and we already had some revenue going from the online thing. So yeah, quit my job and haven't worked for somebody else since. So that that's kind of the the oh. long story about you know how Diesel Laptops got started.
1: Yeah. Wow isn't it great? Like you have a good partner, like the, it, it doesn't, it's not talked about enough where your life partner, whoever it may be, that support is so critical. Like they are your kitchen cabinet. They're the ones that believe in you. They're the ones, if there's any other person on the planet has a more vested interest in your success, it's your partner, right? It's like, you know, and of course they want to make you happy. I mean, generally unless obviously things go south but gosh quit your side hustle (laughs) because they're worried that you're gonna and my guess is yeah i'm gonna crush you and i probably did and yeah you know we're friends but you clearly don't have the vision where they could have been oh no you need to double down on that you know yeah, I mean, that's what my dad said. He goes, Can't
2: your current employer just buy that or do that? Like you had a good thing going there. There's gotta mm-hmm. be a thing they could sell or do. And they didn't they didn't want any part of it. And I can tell you I got off the Christmas list real quick and I got on the attorney list from them when I started hiring. Oh. Well, I as I was scaling, I needed to hire people yeah. I knew, right? And yeah, yeah. you always people are like, How'd you get your first couple of hires? I'm like, Well, I hired the people I worked shoulder to shoulder with for 10 years. Yeah. Those are the first people I said, come on over. And unfortunately, they all worked at the same place I worked at. Yeah. So, you know, it We went through that whole, that whole little battle and everything. Um, You know, we didn't, I don't think we did anything wrong. They were just trying to protect what they had. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's, that's, that's someone trying to protect their turf because they don't know how to do it any other way. Right. Like entrepreneurs are all about creating the opportunity and innovating and just getting ahead. Like the best competitive defense is to out innovate and just get ahead of the curve yeah, if you've got tons of money, you can do the lawyer thing and all, but that's just never gonna work out. Like that's a net negative. I always say when you get lawyers involved, you've failed. Like I and I have a lot of great lawyer friends, but I'm like, you failed. you're done. Like, just that's a failure because that's not helping anyone, it's just making them rich, not making you rich. Or in even like time and effort. And that sometimes can be a common tactic with big companies. So well, I'm glad you uh weathered the storm, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm glad I, am glad to listen to my wife. Right. I I remember, you know, advice I've ever given anyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She, she still
2: reminds me every, every day, I think, but you know, I, the one of the most impactful things she said was, look, we, we have no debt. We have cash in the bank. You already got your side business thing going on eBay and the website a little bit. You got money coming in. She goes, worst case is, we try it for a bit. It doesn't work. She goes, You could get a job somewhere else. Like, yeah. I was yeah. in a field where I could go, you know, I'd probably oh, yeah. have to relocate or move somewhere. But I was like, You know what? You're absolutely right. Like, if we're ever going to do it, I know, I know it sucks. Our kids are one and three. Like, we got a newborn around, but let's, let's roll with this and try it. And, um, yeah. 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 So, it, in, again, in, in hindsight, these horrible things at the time in my life, I feel like a failure. And every time I was like, Man, it, it, it made me, it forced me to go do something different. And, and I'll, three cases, it bettered out. And I still use that story today. I mean, you know, the unfortunate reality is you hire employees and sometimes you have to terminate them. Sometimes they terminate you it goes, goes both ways. Yeah. And I, I try to tell people every time, like, man, look, I'm sorry. It didn't work out. I, all I can tell you my experience is, um, I, I've been on your side of the fence and I came out a different and better person every time. And I, I hope, I hope it goes the same way for
1: you. Yeah. It's nothing. It's, it's hardly ever personal unless they're really psychopathic. It's just like a not not a good fit you're in a different life space, you know, that's what, that's what I've always thought. Like anyone that's always all gets out bent out of shape. They've been laid off or fired. If it's like, unless, you know, they're violent or well caught, obviously let's caveat that, but sometimes it just doesn't work out and those people go somewhere else and they're just as successful. I mean, all the most monumental times in my career where it's been like, I had to make a choice or something bad, you know, I've been laid off. I've been, you know, that's a horrible thing. I've had to lay people off. It's just a horrible situation. But then I, you know, realized it's like, well, you know, the, if I the way I, if I handle this properly, one I can learn from it into the relationship, you know, or the the people, both sides, right? You know, try to try to make it as best you can. I mean, there's, I think there's like only one time I've actually burned a bridge so bad that like there was just a crater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I firebomb this thing like <laughs> Dresden, like it's done, <laughs> yeah. and no, no going back to that one point of no my, return. Yeah. yeah, well, it was a bad situation, but you know, I I learned from it. It was actually a jump to a better thing. So, wow. But I mean, what's interesting is that you're in a, you know, diesel mechanic, diesel like truck most people traditionally wouldn't think of that as like the most kind of innovative and and you know pushing forward in technology yet there's a lot there i mean you got to keep up so i'm just curious like how how is that landscape nowadays i mean you see all of the talk of shortages in trucks and drivers and then the move to electric and like there's a whole there's a cornucopia of things going on well, what are well, you sort of seeing and how, how do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I
2: can, I can break down, I guess I'll break down two different ways here. So first of all, when we say the word diesel, there's really three diesel segments. There's like the light duty diesel, which we call the Ford Chevy Dodge stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I try really hard to stay away from that stuff. But I, I keep kind of getting sucked into it. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the commercial on highway truck stuff, which is really where our bread and butter started. And I haven't mentioned the biggest diesel market. And so when people don't even realize it's the off-highway diesel market. Uh-huh. So people don't realize anything that digs in the dirt, yeah. anything that farms something, generators, yeah. those little tuggers, at the airport that bring your luggage around. That's all diesel. There's so much diesel around that people don't even realize. And just the on-highway, to put in perspective, the on-highway commercial truck market in North America for just parts to fix those things is over $34 billion a year. Wow. Uh, and there's hundreds of thousands of employees that are actively employed, just, just working on these things. So, and then, then talk about the rest of it, right? The off highway side of the world and the light duty diesel. So it's a, it's a big market segment. And unfortunately the repair process works the same way it has for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And anyone that's ever owned a car or an older car, especially know this. And this is the way our world works to explain to the audience, truck drives down the road, Truck has a problem. Noise symptom. Check engine light. Exhaust. Whatever has a problem. Goes into a facility. That facility diagnoses it, gives you a quote. You authorize it. They make the repairs and get your vehicle back. And I think anyone that's ever had something break down is like, yeah, obviously that's how it works. And and what they don't realize is technology has changed it, and it's it's already happened, and it's happening at a much faster pace. And what's happened is. Well, now we can get vehicle data live while it's driving down the road. Yeah, and People know this already about Tesla. Yeah, They yeah. know this about some of the other ones. And everyone's like, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is if I'm getting data off of something constantly and I have computers and humans monitoring it, I can now predictively even tell you before you have a problem. So people don't understand that when that check engine light goes on on their car, or their vehicle, whatever it is, whether there is is a sensor value in the background somewhere that's creeping up, and then it hits a threshold and then the light comes on. So what if we watch that sensor as it's creeping up and comparing it to every other sensor and every other vehicle in the same situation? Maybe we can actually say, hey, you're about to have a problem. And the other big difference is automotive. If your vehicle goes down, that's just a way for you to get tuned from work or to shuttle the kids to school or whatever. Commercial trucks are tools that you people use to make money. <laughs> so when a commercial truck's down, it's like a $1,000 a day. A diesel powered equipment. My dad's got gravel pits. If one of his critical pieces go down, that thing's like ten thousand dollars a day. He's losing out. Wow. So these these are these are a different a different situation than personal right. automobiles. And you can't go rent a new generator and have it there in a couple hours. It's it's not like that it would in our world. It'd be tough. Yeah, it would It'd be, be tough. really tough, right? I can't go rent another mixer truck if my mixer truck breaks down. So so we're sitting here saying, man, now data's coming off. Now we can be predictive. Now what's gonna happen is it's not gonna get towed in somewhere and someone's gonna be blind working on it, it's gonna be a call center analyzing that data being like, Oh, we think it's this thing. Let's figure out who has capacity to fix it. Let's make sure they have the parts on hand to fix those things. And before that vehicle even shows up, people now know what to do and what to expect on that thing. And they can make the repairs and they can get that truck out and they can be validated. So although it sounds simple, it all goes back to, I'm getting data off vehicles. What does that mean? It means I can vastly improve how long equipment's down or if it's even down at all. And This is a multi-billion dollar opportunity we're chasing here at diesel laptops. And it's the evolution as we see it. And we already see it. Again, I give people the Tesla examples and all these things that are happening. So I'm sitting here saying, Man, I've already built diagnostic tools. I got devices on trucks. I have a call center staff with diesel textures already. I have training centers across the US. I built the repair information. I built the problem like I built all the pieces. We just never put them together. So that's really the evolution of where we see this company heading.
1: And and do you think? kind of the move to more electric, you know, away from kind of diesel. I don't know what the timeline that most countries are in, but it seems to me that clearly that if diesel goes away, (laughs) there's a problem. I'm just curious how you, how you see that evolution. And is it, you know, I I hear about it a lot and, you know, like I get it right. I understand why, but like infrastructure, and best practices, and just the ballot. You said the 55-year-old tech, like the. there's a lot of ballast. You just don't switch like that. So what's the trend there looking like?
2: Yeah, so I can explain it I'll explain in both two segments. So first of all, you have automotive, and we all see the headlines every day. Tesla's worth this, blah, blah, blah. EV's taking over the world. Um, just so people have it in perspective here, last year, 600,000, EV automobiles were sold in the US. 15 million cars were sold total, right? So EVs have less than 5% market share, but they get 99% of the the press and the media coverage. Don't get me wrong, that 600,000 is double what it was last year and it's growing fast, right? But the last reports I read, it'll be 2030. They're expecting maybe 30% of the market will be EV for new cars. Um, And keep in mind, cars on average are 12 years old. So it's going to take a long time For all this to really affect automotive, so then let's talk about commercial trucks. Commercial trucks, in a really good year, we produce a quarter million commercial trucks in the United States. Um, There are less today, as I'm as I'm talking to you here. There are less than one thousand commercial EV trucks on the road. Um, It's actually probably less than five hundred. So there are very few. So all these big name companies that have been around forever: Volvo trucks, Freightliner, Peterbilt, Kenworth. People names people may recognize. They are like literally last two weeks ago was the first Mac EV truck delivered to a customer, right? So, and what the manufacturers are doing is they are putting um, three to five year warranties on these things. Uh, the other problem is is these EV market for commercial truck. It's not the over the road stuff that people think where EVs taking place is uh, buses. Buses a great great yeah, thing for EVs. No for buses EV. are
1: huge, huge, yeah. Right. Yep.
2: So that fits really well there especially the school bus industry. Um, The other one that's really fitting. Well, I just had today, I was, I was doing a a, a talk with Exos. Exos is a a startup publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. They make electric trucks. They're doing step vans. So like the FedEx guy that delivers, those are step vans or the linen truck. Uh, They're doing really well there as well. Uh, But these guys are startups. They, they're, they've never manufactured trucks before. I mean, they, they just, Exos just had their first quarter and they said, Hey, good news. We, you know, we, we, we did, you know, like 15 trucks last month. So it's, it's going to it's they don't have the capacity yet. Right. right. And the, the other problem is the cost. So when I talk about EV buses, they cost double what a diesel-powered bus does. Yeah. Plus you have to buy all the infrastructure to do it, and there's this whole conversation of our infrastructure in the US really can only handle so many EVs, right? So so there's yeah. a lot of variables going on here as these yeah, things yeah. go, but I can tell you from my side, I view it as a huge opportunity. Um and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, I was 20 years late to the diesel diagnostic game. And within seven years, we bypassed everybody. Like, like our nearest competitor, we're more than double their revenue. So we just shot past everybody really, really quick. Mm-hmm. And I tell all of these guys, look, I was late to the diesel game. I am not going to be late to the EV game. And now I have people, resources, and a company. So you get to, we all get to go back to day one here. And let's all compete with each other. And let's see, let's see how this plays out. Wow. Um, and it's a huge opportunity. There's still a ton of sensors, wiring, batteries, high voltage, low voltage. Um, the huge opportunity for us is uh, all the charging stations. People yeah. don't realize charging stations, yeah. they're not like fuel pumps of are all mechanical. These are computers. They have capacitors, ECMs, wiring, the exact same stuff that's in commercial trucks. So for us, we're looking at this like, man, I think our market just expanded. We only not get to now diagnose commercial trucks. But all the infrastructure and charging stations and all these things that exist to support this whole thing. So it's it's yeah, you're right. It's a crazy world. You got EVs, we got hydrogen trucks, we have robots driving trucks, all kinds of all kinds of craziness. And technology is definitely making its way into the commercial truck market where it typically hasn't.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So powerful, like that you've built platform ecosystem. You know, because what's interesting is that. I mean, of course, the name, right? Like, uh, you know, like that's not, but that's it's more than that, right? And I, I, I've always seen and and found that the folks that kind of understand that they're, what they, they first do is not where they're going to end up. And it looks like as, you know, as you've evolved through, oh, wow, these are huge opportunities because you're right. No matter what's going to happen, if it's a diesel, electric, a hydrogen, whatever, the infrastructure you've built to monitor it, figure out if it needs your everything needs repair, right? Like everything breaks. <laughs> it's like universal law of nature, right? If it's gonna go wrong, it will, right? Um, and just having that kind of interesting. I was like, Yeah, I didn't think about the charging station one. I didn't think about that. You're right. I didn't,
2: I I didn't either until here's what happened. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on there a lot. I, I get millions of views a year on my LinkedIn. So I'm on there and I post this picture about an EV bus and a company's like, oh, we paid half a million dollars, but we did. It was free. So I made a little post about it, a little comment because they got the grant money and everything. Yeah. And someone from a from International Truck and Engine uh, said, Hey, why don't you guys come come out to our facility and actually learn more about these EV trucks? So it's pretty cool. I got a truck manufacturer inviting me to come to their place to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. And we went up there and, and learned a lot. And that's where they were like, dude, like this industry needs help. Everyone's come up with their own charging stations. Yeah, it's nice. Like these things are going to break everywhere. Like it's, they're it's, like, it's, wink, wink. Like it. you should look into this. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think, you know, a lot of, I guess I go back to what, kind of what you're commenting on is, you know, when I look at what diesel laptops, how I started it. It wasn't to go sell diagnostic tools. It was to provide somebody a value, to provide them a benefit. And it was so they could they could do their own thing. Yeah. And I think we've done a really clear job of every step along the way being like, how do we go create, what value or benefit do we provide that user? Hmm. And we always start there. And then we look at, okay, if we can do that, let's figure out what we need to build to do that. And we're one of those companies, we're still small and nimble and I still run with no debt. So we don't do a bunch of analysis to like, what's it going to cost? What's our ROI? What's our payback? We're just like, let's go do that thing. We're willing to roll the dice and see if it works. And some things work out, some things don't. But I, I go back to, it started with diagnostic tools. I was solving a problem for them. That benefit was, I don't have to call you or come see me anymore when I need something. Today, when we're doing these things, the value is still there. The proposition's still there. It's, hey, I don't have to deal with a breakdown event. Or it's, I I can now use my, I use my mobile device to use, to do diagnostics. I don't need to buy a $10,000 tool or have a laptop. So it's just, it's just all about solving people's problems and giving them benefit. It doesn't matter if you're making pizzas or ice cream or selling fuel or diagnostic tools. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day is what benefit what value did I provide my customer? Yeah. And people oftentimes try to go the other way where it's, I got this cool widgety thing. I think it'll work in this market. And they try to jam it in there and it, yeah usually doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's most SaaS startups and all my buddies that do that. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I learned this the hard way, by the way, right? Yep. Six or seven startups, I lose track depending on how you do it. And I've written a bunch of books and all the books I've written were the ones I wanted to read, right? Like, oh, of course I'm going to, you know, this show is based on the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos. I luckily stumbled into that because a lot of people wanted to understand how to be a better entrepreneur. And this was during the Me Too movement. And, you know, like it just hit hit the, hit the trajectory. And it just turns out that it's a great topic. And I could talk about it for, you know, I've had, I don't know, almost 200 guests, like so I could talk about this forever. Um, but I did this new book. And I said, Hey, maybe I should try a different approach. Uh, maybe I should like write something that people want to actually read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And this is, this is, yeah. if you're a tech person, like, you know, me engineering background or whatever, you tend to fall in love with the technology and the product. And I think your attitude is you fall in love with solving the problem. Yep. And if you can really fall in love with solving the problem, it doesn't matter how you solve it. Right. I'm sure in the early days when you're in the garage, you're kind of like, God, I could do this way better, but I need to get some money out. Or I need to like, you know, ship stuff. And the people that I've found that have kind of stood the test of time and entrepreneurship and have been the most successful and have been the most like adaptable are the ones they fall in love with the problem. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, There's a lot of problems to solve and generally not, I mean, you know, you're more, of course, more than just diesel engine and trucks, but like the logistical infrastructure of moving things and that moving thing could be dirt and rock or your Amazon package like that. That's the big idea you guys are going after. It seems to me, I mean, I don't know my, my off base. No,
2: no, you're, you're exactly right. So, I mean, just like a little more detail in our world, the way, the way our entire industry works today is they use, one piece of software to hook up to something and do the diagnostics. Then they use another piece of software to actually, okay, my diagnostic tool told me the fault code. Now I go to my repair information to figure out how to fix the code, get a wiring diagram, get the specs, whatever. So now there's a second piece there. And then the third piece is, well, something broke. I got to look up my parts to fix it. And I came from a dealership, and OEM. And I can tell you every other OEM I've ever worked at or been into is the same way. And that's usually like three different departments inside one company. And it takes hours, hours to go from, I have a diagnostic code to here's my part number and availability to get that part. That takes hours. And I'm saying, I'm sitting here saying, well, why does it? Like, why can't we connect all the fault codes to repair information? And why can't I connect all the repair information to the part number? And why can't I connect that part number to all the sellers in the market that have that part? And when we looked at it and we had built some of those pieces, we all sat around and we're like, Man, if we do that, we go from we go from people spending hours to literally minutes for them to do the same thing and are pushing buttons as they're making phone calls and walking around and doing stuff. And that's been the underlying goal now the last year or two is let's build that up and let's get that to market. So I'm excited we just started a beta program with a customer and they absolutely love it and their customers love it. And literally it's just amazing. it blows my mind. Again, I can use a phone with a couple hundred dollar piece of hardware and instantly know what I need to buy and who has it in stock and how long it's gonna to take to get for me to fix that. That's never been done in our industry. I don't think it's even done in automotive or any other kind of these connected vehicle industries. So I don't think so. It, it, it's to us like because we're insiders, like, man, this is groundbreaking, it's gonna change the world. Other people are they're like, what? what's that mean? How does that work? It, it, it's a difficult conversation to have, but it goes back to solving the problem. And we know we provide a benefit by doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe only Tesla, you I think could could do that, maybe. I don't know because see that they're captive right like you know they have their own infrastructure they have their own stuff when which is fine but that really doesn't build a market you know yeah. like there ha- like there has to be competition and you know you have to have different levels of the value chain so you know your repair guy or gal in some small place that needs this stuff and they've got to service a bunch of different people. They just can't be captive because there's just not enough big enough market, right? You know how many Teslas are in rural wherever, or as an example, um, it's fascinating. I'm trying to think of an industry that does this really well. That is sort of a parallel. Have you have you have you looked at any of those to kind of be like, oh well, it's sort of like this. We're going to kind of, you know, borrow. Yeah, the model. <laughs> what yeah. they do, quote unquote.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a little bit in the automotive market, uh, but again, trucks are different. So, if you buy like a Toyota Camry, that's all Toyota. It's their engine, their transmission, their ABS, their axles. Uh, you buy a, a Peterbilt, it's maybe their truck, probably not their axles, probably not their suspension, probably not their fifth wheel. So, we're not vertically integrated. They go buy oh. these pieces from other companies. Oh. So, it's a much more complex problem than like the Ford and Teslas have I didn't
1: know in that. order
2: to do this. Yeah. It's, it, I trust me, it, it is a weird, it, like, if you flip a truck upside down, they all kind of look the same. And it's, it's, there's only there, yeah, it, it's a really weird industry. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. surprises people when they learn that. So even like Ford, Ford will put Cummins engines in some of their stuff. Well, they don't, they don't have the diagnostic tools for their own engine inside their own truck. So you have to have two different pieces of software. So it, it gets huh. really wonky and weird. Why, uh, why did it go that way? Well, you got to think there's, there's when you build a model truck you don't build it just to do one model and trim levels like cars because that truck may need to haul short ranges and just go like day trips or it might need to go all over the all over north america or you may need to put a dump truck on the back so you have to have all these different components to build the truck to how the customer needs to use that truck and not one manufacturer can make all the parts and pieces to do all those things they're trying all of them are trying really hard so over the last 10 years they've started a make their own engines, make their own transmissions, make their own suspensions., uh, but customers still sometimes are like, man, I really love your truck,, uh, but I don't want your Packard engine. I want a Cummins engine. And they're like, okay, so it, it's it's a weird space. and yeah, and there, there's I mean, there's billions getting thrown around in this space now with the EVs coming. Like Cummins engines have been around forever. They're publicly traded. I mean, they just bought a an axle manufacturer because they're like, we need to be in the EV space. Diesels are in trouble. Like,
1: so they're- well, yeah. And and usually the the EV engines in the axle, right? Like that's the normal place. They don't put it in the front. And they usually, you know, could be dual engine. I don't know. I mean, I don't there, know.
2: There's so many different ways they can do these EV things. Yeah. Um. It's 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 a crazy world. And um. I mean, just look at look at the automotive market. How many years do we go by? I mean, first of all, there was over two thousand automotive manufacturers that started up, yeah, and it ended up being three made it, right? Yeah, Ford, and yeah, so three made it. Um, and I get the same story playing out again with EVs. All these EV startups, all these things happening, and, and all this stuff, and they're, they're not all going to make it. There's there's zero percent chance. Yeah. Uh, but it's a cool time to be alive because when was the last time we saw a brand new car manufacturer get started in the United States? Hardly Until I mean, Tesla yeah. came along, yeah, Tesla came along. You are like, wow, first one in fifty years. I know. And all of a sudden, now there is a dozen more that came up right behind. Well, you. it's just
1: funny. I think I think he even said, "Yeah, the stupidest thing in the world to do is start an electric car company."
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I mean, I I want to say there is something like one thousand just in China too. Like it, it's it's amazing how oh, many yeah. are starting them up. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, the, the, what's interesting is that as as um, industries mature and consolidate, right? What, what's interesting is that okay, you know, there is and people may disagree or disagree on it, but capitalism works because of competition and competition's good because competition raises levels up everyone's game. Like you have to compete. Now, of course, some people try to compete nefariously and that's bad. And usually depending on how it's set up, you know, the government clearly they're the, they're, they set the playing field and they're the kind of the quote unquote referee loosely from a sports analogy, but generally, you know, in a free market, the best, best, company wins and there should be diversity because that's better for consumers. Right. But, you know, as you know, as things consolidate and they go to like, almost like an oligarchy, right. Of like, okay, there's three or four, well, what happens? Quality suffers. They don't have to do as much more regulations actually is not good in some cases because it prevents competition. And like people don't understand that, that a lot of times big companies bitch and moan about regulations. They're the ones pushing them I mean, pharmaceuticals is the best example of this. Like, they're building a a walled garden, like moat, massive walls around their profit center, and they're like, "Oh, well, you know, regulation's bad." You're like, "You're the ones lobbying for it, you idiots!" Like, don't yeah. go there, right? But what then? What happens, right? You know, in the car industry in the U.S., you got the '70s and '80s, which yeah. was horrible. I mean, I had a '78 Chevy Chevette, biggest piece of i can't even say it garbage like and then what happens well and then you've got japan oh japan you know china da, 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 da. then they get better yep <laughs> yeah swings around right and so anyway so
2: little, little micro story there. We A couple of years ago, I found this t- company in Italy that made this great tool for diagnostics. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll take that tool, surround it with everything we do. I think we'll sell a bunch of these. Well, they had a bunch of distributors in the United States already and they they let us start selling it. And all of a sudden we're just selling the crap out of it. Like just selling so many of these things and it was upsetting the other distributors. They're like, well, we can't compete against diesel laptops. So they all they all had a meeting with this vendor without me there. Right. And they just, it was basically a complaint session about me and my company. And you know, I still give that company credit. They just looked at them and just said, Look, they're selling the same tool that you guys have been selling for more money and provided more value. Like, all we can tell you guys is be better. <laughs> like this, this is really what it needs. And they were absolutely right. Like you just said, you need that competition to elevate your game and provide better products and services. And I can tell you those other competitors, some of them just stopped selling it, other ones they up their game and they compete with us. And that's all good for the customer at the end of the day. And it's good for my business. And I think it's good for their business.
1: Yeah. I've never, I never believe anyone that says they don't have competition. Like a lot of, a lot of these startups, Oh, there's no one else doing it like we are. Ah, we're the only one. I'm like, Ooh, this is bad because if there's, if you're the only one, does it really market? You know, that's like, I always, and I never used to think that way. Of course, being a technology person until I'm like, well, I got to sell this thing. And Then I realized it's really not, you know, how good your stuff is. It's like the best story wins. It's not, I mean, you got to have the level, right? Like you can't be, there's a standard, right? Like it has to be good or better or whatever. But after that, it's all about the marketing and the messaging and the customer support and the user experience. I mean, nowadays it's all about the user experience. Like pretty much you can build anything. I, I, I I dare someone to try to say, oh, well, Jara, you know, no, 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 Products democratize. It's all about the experience. And I think from what, from what, you know, our conversation here and like what you're trying to do at, at these laptops, I mean, you know, again, you fell in love with the problem and you have an experience that merits devotion to your product line, no matter what you sell because you've got, you're thinking, how do I solve this problem better for the customer? And I wish more entrepreneurs would just like, listen to Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it took a while to get there. I mean, I can
2: tell you like, as our company grew at first, it was just, Hey, we got these things and it went really fast. And then we, we kind of plateaued there for a little bit. Yeah. And when I look back on it, I mean, we were just disorganized and yeah. departments are growing at different rates. Uh, we weren't focused on growing the business anymore. We were just trying to focus on getting stuff out the door. Uh, so I, I, I get now why companies kind of go like up and then they flatten out and they just, and some, some go down and some stay flat and very few keep, keep rocket shipping. Right. So I, I get it now being in the middle of it. Um, and it's hard. You gotta, you gotta change the way you do everything and the way you think about things and where you spend your time. And it's, it's a hard transition for a lot of people to make.
1: Yeah. 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 No, what the, the, what you just talked about is something that this guy, uh, Jason Cohen talks about the elephant curve of marketing. Where it's this rapid rise and then it plateaus and then it starts to drop. And the companies, to your point, the companies at that point, their market saturated or their product, they have to add something else to continue the growth because it will decline. Every single marketing channel program declines. Like you either have to expand into a new market or grow your market through different products. Like that's kind of the only. One everything else has sort of been arbitraged out. So you just need to make sure you're hitting those curves. (laughs) And to your point, if you don't, you decline and you go away or, you know, and it's a slow, it can be a slow, steady decline or a rapid decline. Like, you know, look at Peloton, right? Rode the wave and then didn't have (laughs) like, everyone's like, oh, well they have this rower now. I'm like, Really? You don't think that you could have figured out you needed a stupid rower? And then the even better thing is they hire like uh what is it, McKenzie, like this massive consulting firm. Well, I know what McKenzie's gonna say. You need to cut expenses. Like some knucklehead (laughs) idiot doesn't know that. and I gotta have McKenzie tell me this. Like, great, give me the four by four, you know, the two by two grid, McKenzie, like what I got it. Come on, really? Like you just didn't innovate enough and you got lazy and you got compliant, like. Never, never be the soft. You know, like people are out to get you. Do not be compliant, or you will. And that Peloton is a perfect example. Like,
2: yeah, it it is. And I mean, you were just talking about like the marketing thing. I mean, I again, we have about two hundred employees. Well, ten of them are in marketing. I I never thought I'd have full time staff writers, full time social media people, video person. Yeah. But it's the same thing. We were we went through there. and We're like, man, why are sales kind of flattening here? Like, well, we're not getting any more leads. We're doing the same thing we've always done. Like we gotta we gotta go to the next level if we want to get more leads and more marketing and, and do yeah. those things. And once you start putting the energy and strategizing, yeah, there's there's
1: more business to be had out there. You just gotta get to figure yeah. out your best path to go get it. Well, yeah. I mean, and this is a startup problem. The classic, absolute classic. Hear this all the time. Oh, yeah, we're product-led growth, we're growth hacking, and we've got a couple, you know, and you know, if you've got a good product, like sales come, right? Almost by accident, you like stumble into something good. Okay, great. Yeah, everything's going great. We don't need any of that brand and PR, all that BS, blah, 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 right? All right. Always happens. I, I can almost predict it. You go to zero to hero revenue, right? Zero to 1 million, 1 million to 5 million. And then it starts to kind of flatten out, elephant curve, like clockwork. <laughs> yep. And then it's all of a sudden oh, I guess I need some marketing to generate some leads for sales. And you're like, well, duh. Yep. You know? But it's an evolution, right? Because you're so into it, that that zero to hero curve, that, you know, again, part of the elephant curve, it's it's exponential to get the client if you climb out of it, but then it starts to be, Exp, you know, exponential, and then it's quadratic, and then it just slowly peters out. And then you're like, that's where everyone freaks out. Oh, I guess I need marketing. now. <laughs>
2: it, it's it's really funny, because I mean, we've gone through all this stuff. And I had the, you know, the front row seat to it. Yeah. And we have a lot of, you know, vendors we work with, and some of them are smaller. Yeah. And like, I just visited one, and you know, they got like 20 employees. Yeah. And you could just tell, like, they're gonna be stuck at that level for a long time. The owner still is like, holding on to everything, not trusting his employees, taking it all on himself. But I'm just sitting there like, I, we left. I was like, man, I, first of all, I love this vendor. Uh, I, I really hope that that, that CEO or owner can get out of his own way and start giving up control. Otherwise we're going to, they're going to be constraining us. And that's not well, going to be good. That's,
1: for that's the thing. I think that's the most powerful thing. Once you've hit some sort of scale, especially if you got dependencies and, you know, theory of constraints. I mean, the best example, obviously, is this whole supply chain fiasco. It's like, yep. oh, so you're telling me one boat blocks the Suez Canal <laughs> and the yep. entire supply chain of the world like stops. And you're like, what are you talking about? Or, you know, all the ships off a of Long Beach. Or like the best one was like Maersk is a yep. one of the biggest logistics companies in the world. And a while back, I actually went there to pitch one of the startups I was at. And I'm talking to them, you know, they're like trying to do this more technology innovation or whatever. And uh, they, they got hacked. I don't even remember this, but they got oh, yeah. yep. Shut down on their entire computer system because they got blocked yeah. out of it. Literally going to take down, I don't know, a hundred plus year old company, right? 25% of the world's shipping goes through Maersk. And I'm like, well, how was that? <laughs> So and like, it was pretty stressful. I'm like, well, how, what did you guys do? They're like, we ran the entire company on Excel and yep. WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember like you mentioned the Suez
2: Canal thing <laughs> when, uh, uh, the, Ever, I think it was evergreen. I think it was a shipping yeah. that got that there. There's this iconic photo. Again, it, like it's beach, right? And there's one dude in an excavator in the middle of the desert trying to undig the front of that thing out. I'm like, I can't believe the world's held up by by, by, by this guy, 30, you know, by that kind of 30 year old excavator trying to undig a, undig
1: a ship. Like, you just imagine the world we like, live in. Your boss is like, Hey, yo, bro. Um, just, just so you know, we need you to take the excavator down there and dig this thing out. And you're like, uh, Okay, and you're like, well, What does this mean? And
2: you're like, The yeah.
1: guy. <laughs> yeah, I.
2: You know, I, I look at all this and like, no one, no one really talked about supply chain, right? Before yeah, no one cared no. about trucks and ships and no, ports. No, uh, it, It's absolutely crazy now. And and we're sitting here being like, yep, we, this is, this is exactly this what we're providing the resources to get these things this unstuck and, and get things going. Right. Yeah, so yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing how much technology makes its way to all these spaces that people never saw coming and how, how big these industries really are when you start peeling the onion back.
1: Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Logistics is like, (laughs) if you want to be good at one thing, I'm pretty sure that that's it. I mean, that's what wins wars, right? Like for every one soldier in the battlefield, there's like five or six people getting the beans and bullets to them. Like, it's not like, it's a big deal. And um, anyway, so, but I mean, I wanted before we, before we end, I wanted to talk that you, you said before we started recording that you got to talk to Mike Rowe. Yes. Yes. And, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Love dirty jobs. I love his attitude about getting more trades. And like, we cannot have this elitism about going to college and all that. I mean, yeah, college, whatever for some people, but you know what? We need people fixing trucks and this sort of stuff. So how, how I mean, you, cause you guys just came off of like a, like an event that you guys are doing. So how, how did that come about and sort of what's you know, yeah, what's we've, the, what's the, what's the, what's, what's going the on there? Yeah. There? yeah, what's yeah, the yeah. So, out there? I mean,
2: Hey, we, we do an online event every year. We make and it's a virtual expo. So we make the vendors pay to be there and they have an expo booth and we make it free for all the attendees. And we give away a bunch of free stuff and we have a bunch of talks. Um, It's the third year doing it. And Hey, we got a diesel technician shortage, 80,000 open jobs for diesel techs. Community colleges have produced less than 10,000 this year. And that Delta has gotten worse every year since, since we've seen the numbers. Um, I man, like we need, like, we need to talk about this more. Right. So we got connected with Mike Rowe, the Mike Rowe foundation and you know, they're, they really lined up well with us and he agreed to come do a 40 minute thing with us. And, um, I will say, you know, I got a chance to talk to him about 20 minutes beforehand. He, he is a, he's a very down to earth guy that, that is there. And I, I, you know, I was like, man, I'm just going to start off and just see how this goes. And I was like, as soon as he came on camera, like, Hey, Mike. Hey, I just want to let you know I'm like your biggest man crush here. So I'm looking forward to this. And right anyway, he starts laughing. Like, don't make it weird, man. I'm like, yeah, oh, here's, here's where we're gonna go. So he was, he's a good guy, and he just speaks common sense. Yeah, it's it's all the things he said when I got to talk to him. It's like, man, we took shop classes out of call out of schools. That was no. that was not a good idea. We don't teach we don't teach financial literacy to people. No. All of a sudden, we're telling people to go to school. And they have no idea why. And they're taking out $200,000 loans. Crazy. He goes, none of this, none of this makes any sense. And we all agree. We all look at him like, yeah, no kidding. And he has story after story of his foundation, giving scholarships to people that are just taking two year tech programs or some one year thing. And now they're making a hundred, a hundred thousand a year, 150, $200,000 a year. And those are jobs where you never have to worry about a job again in your, a day in your life. You never have to. And those are the people that end up, you know what, those are the people that end up creating plumbing companies, HVAC companies, yeah. electrician companies, I mean, yeah. they, they turn into business owners, a lot of them, yeah. through that because there's so much demand for it. Sure. So, yeah, it's it's really frustrating to see there's over almost 2, million in, 2 trillion in student loan debt. Well, there's 11.4 million open jobs. 80% of them don't require a college degree. I know. Yet, yet kids are standing on the line for $50,000 student loans to go get a job that that costs that they'll make 40 grand for when they get out in four years. It's it it crazy. makes yeah. it, it makes no sense. So it, it's really infuriated to me. I think it's infuriated to a lot of people that are in any kind of trade organizations and trade skills at all.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, honestly, we've lost that blue collar work ethic. I think, I mean, I always talk to entrepreneurs. They're like, Oh, what's the secret? I go blue collar work ethic. And they're like, what does that mean? And I go, this is not a hard job. You just have to do the work. And that is not like you're some s- super cool, like, Oh, I'm going to growth hack. You just got to put the damn time in 80% of this job is having a blue collar work ethic. It is not fun. It is not sexy at all. It is exactly what they teach you in a trade school or like mom and pop business. It's like sweeping the floor because you have to, because you can't afford, you know, someone to do it for you. It's getting on the phone call and you don't, you know, like it's, I can't stress that enough. And, you know, a lot of the younger folk are always like, Oh, we're just going to, you know, growth hack our way or whatever. And to your point about, I never thought I'd need marketing, you know, <laughs> like that's it's the blue collar work. This stuff's hard. So I'll tell you the best thing my dad ever did for me.
2: This is summer after seventh grade, right? Last day of school, come home, I'm like great. All summer, play basketball, video games, swim. This yeah. would be great summer. Yeah. Come home. My dad throws me a pair of work gloves on the counter. I'm like, what's that for? He's like, well, you're no longer in grade school and you are either now in school or working for the rest of your life. So we're going to, it starts today. And I'm like, well, I don't have a job. He's like, no problem. I got a job for you. Be at be at the, the block plant, which is about a mile and a half down the road. Be there about 730 tomorrow. Okay. So I, you know, take my pedal bike down there and everything and show up. And literally if you've, if for people who have never seen what a block mass, a concrete block manufacturing plant is, it is horrible. It is loud. We're in earplugs. You got these big kilns that are up to, you know, 200 degrees. It's steamy. It's just, it's not fun. You know, the guys there have you know, love and hate tattoos or teardrops on their eyes. Like, it's that atmosphere. This and there I'm in a seventh grader, like, yeah. all right, yeah. this is what I'm doing. But, you know, and I hated it. I remember crying to my dad, like, don't make me go back and try yeah. to get my mom to not let me, you know, like it wasn't happening. He may work through it. And I, I look back now, I'm like, you know what? I got through that. It, it it really wasn't that bad once I shifted my mind to like, hey, I hear I'm going to do a job and do it the best I can. And it, I think it taught me a really strong work ethic in the beginning. And I can tell you ever since that day, I, I've never taken a dime from my dad besides that student loan, which I'm I'm still working on paying it back for through different things. Uh, but I think everyone needs that experience of just, hey, this is real life. This is what's waiting for you after high school. And and letting them know so they can have a little bit better decision-making process, you know, when they're figuring out what the rest of their life looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons that. What, you know, Mike, Mike Rowe says and talks about just seems to resonate. I mean, with me, I mean, maybe it's my generation too, Gen X, I'm Gen Xer, so, you know, we're between the boomers and the millennials, you know, I always say we hate both of them equally because they're like these idiots. Well, you know, um, I'm, it's just a joke. Uncle crazy. Uncle Jari's telling a joke. Don't get offended. <laughs> right. Um, like grow up a little bit, but you're right. I mean, my dad's similar. I mean, he, he, he worked for United Airlines. He was a. Uh, engineer like you know made sure that things didn't blow up on planes and stuff and break but you know he grew up on the farm and you know we were in the suburbs of san francisco and but he just had he just couldn't sit still so i remember you know got you know paper out at 10 and then he's like well you got to work around the house and i'm like what do you mean work around the house like i got a paper i like no no you need to work around the house and so we would like dig ditches and i i mean i just I hated it. All my buddies would go play and stuff, and I'm sitting here working on the house, and it would just drive me insane. And I'm still a little bitter about it. But to your point, <laughs> I there's a, there's a certain amount of like that blue collar work ethic, which I think is the most valuable thing anyone can teach you, and it's different than the white collar work ethic. Yeah, you got to be smart or whatever, but I think blue collar folk they understand like the the get their hands dirty kind of thing like what has to, when it has to be done it has to be done it is not about like who you are it's like the job needs to get done do the job that's what he taught me and i mean you know i worked at mcdonald's for like 4 months and i'm like this is hard <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like i don't want to ever do this not that it's not a good job like i you know i really need to like okay go to college you know what i mean i unfortunately or fortunately i didn't have to take any loans out for college so and that was again financial literacy, like one of the things my parents taught me. Like,
2: so there's a show called Blue Collar Millionaires. I don't know if you have ever seen that show, I but have heard. Of but it. but every script is the same. Well, I was mowing the lawn for high school, and then I got a couple of contracting, a couple of jobs for other people. Then I bought some more machines. Yeah, and now I have thirty trucks and hundred employees, and I'm worth ten million dollars, right? It just, yeah. but that can happen day in and day out anywhere in any part of the country, and it just goes back to. The people that really put their nose to the grindstone, they think smart, they think probably a little bit differently than the average person, usually end up doing pretty dang well.
1: Yeah. And I also think it's the opportunity, too. That's the thing that bothers me about the narrative of must go to college. You know, I I don't think that gives the right attitude about the opportunities that are different. And also, I honestly think, you know, you got to elevate the trades as, the noble thing they are. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> carpenters and masons have been doing this for thousands of years, <laughs> like built civilization, right? You're a little stupid techie code and your growth hacking. Eh. <laughs>
2: it, it's like, every time I hear him, like, we're going to forgive student loans. I'm like, you know what? Why don't you take that money and just say, you know what? We got a hundred thousand trade skill, two-year degrees. We're going to give away and go and spend the money that way instead, right? I think we'd be way better off in the long run. It just, there's so much weirdness that goes on in this world. Like another one that came up with with Mike Rowe was, you know, we got 11 and a half million open jobs. We got 8 million people in unemployment. And to give a month, we only have about 200,000 people joining the workforce. Like what? (laughs) Something's broken somewhere in this equation, right? We need to figure it out as a country.
1: Yeah.
2: um, Because there's no lack of opportunity out there.
0: Yeah,
1: I agree. I agree wow, this has just been such a great conversation. I really appreciate your time, man. This is just, it's just good to see like a different take, like, you know, using technology and all that sort of stuff. But like, if diesel trucks don't run, we don't eat. <laughs> that's hundred percent, man. That's that's
2: what it comes down to. And I think we all found that out during COVID when the grocery stores were empty. Like
1: we hundred percent did. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to end. So <laughs> thank you so much. on the show. Good luck with everything and uh, stay safe. Thanks so much, Tyler, for being on the show. I always love uh, entrepreneurs like you who are uh, doing great work in what people think are kind of boring, but I don't know. I don't find it boring. So (laughs) Um, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Tyler. Most of us probably give little thought to diesel trucks, but they are a huge and essential part of the economy. Tyler says he came late to the industry, but it's one thing's where a huge need for what he has to offer, right? Electric vehicles are another market segment Robertson sees as an opportunity for growth. Tyler's company is not so much about offering the right widget, but about offering a package of products and solutions. And I think this whole idea of packages, solutions, um, is a really good idea because people want to solve a problem. They don't really just want a widget, right? So if you can solve a problem... That's great. And the problem may require multiple products, multiple services, multiple training. So I always ask myself, what problem am I trying to solve? What is the thing I need to solve for the customer? And I've actually come at this kind of late too (laughs) because I used to just build things I wanted to build. But no, ask yourself, what problem am I trying to solve? Tyler points out that many people who have built successful businesses simply learn a trade, acquire customers, and grew from there. You don't need a college degree to find a product or service. You just need to find a need and fill it. And it's true. There's lots and lots of entrepreneurs in the trades, plumbers, electricians. You could kind of seem maybe a little bit, you know, like not as entrepreneurial. But there are certain aspects of all of those trades that are entrepreneurial. And his, his business is a great example. As things become more computerized, you're going to need computer skills. That's just the way it is. So think about if you you know if, if you're in a trade, think about, What are some of the new trends in the trade that I could maybe take advantage of or provide a product or service for? It might be adjacent. You just never know. Be ready to change, shift, and let go as you grow. Tyler sees small businesses trying to grow by continuing to do the same thing, but some shifts are required for growth. For instance, he now employs 10 people in marketing in order to help identify more customers and grow his market. As he's found, he's reached a plateau. So, yeah, amazing, huh? It's like, oh, I need more marketing people to find more customers. Well, again, I think, you know, when we talked about it, it was really important to kind of shift with the growing landscape. Shift when the business is shifting. Make sure that you're, you know, as Gretzky would say, skate to where the puck's going to be, right? That's important. So really ask yourself, again, getting back to the second um, actionable insight, what are some of the trends? What are some of the issues and challenges that my customers are facing? How can I get ahead of the curve? So, There you have it, some actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview with Tyler. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com, to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter, at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.